Welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our second mini-series on climate security, looking at the link between security and climate change top issues. I'm Sabrina Dao. And I'm Sofia Shevchuk. This series is a part of a project led by Wise Brussels with the support of the U.S. mission to NATO. In this mini-series, we bring together diverse voices of women across the world leading discussion in climate security. Through their own expertise and experience, they share and debate their point of view on critical climate security issues. We hope you will enjoy this episode as much as we do. Thank you for listening. In this episode, we invite young and skillful women, one from a peace and security background and the other specialized in engineering, to discuss the role of technology in combating and adapting to climate change. We'll go from talking about decarbonization to speaking about hopes and solutions. We think this is a fitting end to this series on climate and security, and we hope that you have enjoyed these episodes as much as we do. Now, on to the discussion. Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode. Let's start with a round of introductions. Elisa and Sevim, please let us know who you are, where you work and what you'll be discussing today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me and for inviting me to this um, podcast. I'm very happy, Sophia, to, to work with you again. My name is Elisa Seid. I work at NATO headquarters in Brussels. I'm an analyst in the Situation Awareness Integration Team in the Situation Center there. And I am very interested in the topic of uh, climate change, climate security, and the nexus between um, security-related challenges and climate change challenges. And uh, yeah, even more, um, I think the topic of how or what type of role technology can play in all this is uh, really crucial. So a great pick for a podcast subject, and I'm looking forward to the discussion. Very much so also from my side. Thanks a lot for the invitation. So my name is Sivim Aktas. I work for the European Commission in Energy and Climate Policy. And uh, prior to that, I worked for a smart renovation company. So let's say there's some kind of private um, private sector experience as well, how I saw like the implementation part of the policy area. But I have to say, I only entered the professional world about two years ago, so uh, very recent, I would say. I'm an engineering graduate from Oxford University, and I specialize in energy systems more particularly, and work a lot on carbon farming at the moment. What I would like to highlight is that you um, can kind of call me a fresher in this entire U-bubble policy world. I kind of observe this world in totally different eyes sometimes. And uh, I'm sometimes also surprised about certain things. And maybe that will be an interesting perspective that I will provide to, uh, to uh, our chat today. I'm very curious which direction it will go. Thank you both Sevim and Elisa for joining us today. I'm very happy to have you two joining us. I have known both of you already for a while and we work together even on a separate projects. And I'm very hopeful about today's episode as the last one of this series to close on this more young, positive, hopeful note. And uh, with this, I'm going to start with the first question. Is technological progress and decarbonization the only right solution for climate change? 
I think this is obviously, yeah, a very pointed question and um, it can only be answered with no, because I think um, any type of uh, absolute posed question uh, in terms of is this the only solution um, is, is quite difficult in the climate change context, because there's always these very many nuances of how to tackle a challenge, of how to consider a challenge and how it is interpreted by so many different communities also worldwide. So first of all, I think um, the technological aspect of addressing climate change is obviously a huge part uh, and will become a, an even bigger part of the solution to climate change. Um, however, it is only one, one aspect, and um, I'm very interested to hear um, from, from Seven more about this with your much more um, technological and also um, yeah, engineering background, which I don't have. So I come from social sciences. Um, I'm a bit more, um, uh, at the moment, I think, uh, would provide maybe the, the softer, <laughs> the, the soft skill answers, um, whilst I'm really, really excited to hear what Seven would have to say from, from your tech background. So maybe let's, let's split it up. Technological solution is, is one part and then decarbonization is the other one. What I mean by technological solutions only being one part is that it does play a key role, but I think what is even more important in order for us as a society or as a world community to tackle climate change and to address climate security is to um, increase awareness, increase education, increase knowledge about the topic. Um, that is one big factor, not only in the Western world, where it's about uh, educating people about their own carbon footprint, about saving energy, about playing a role as a community to um, be mindful about food waste, about their energy consumption, but much more in, in all parts of the world. It's about empowering people to get knowledgeable about solutions. That's uh, something where we can also start on a very individual level in which is a very empowering moment for all of us, because then if we all just focus on this miracle technological solution that might come at some point or that might come on very many different levels, then it's easy to sit back and say, okay, until they found that, I'm still happy to do um, everything I'm doing and eat steak every day and drive to work in my SUV every day, which are none, none of those things is, is bad as in, in, in general and uh, in isolation, but it empowers us incredibly if we know that with knowledge sharing, we can start as an individual every day, every minute to make a contribution to mitigating climate change or to adapt to, to resilience thinking and climate change matters. And then the second point, decarbonization, I think that's also something where we have to be very careful because it's only, as the word already says, about carbon. But there are so many more um, greenhouse gases that are, in fact, as the name already says it, creating the greenhouse gas effect. And that's, I think, where a lot of regulations and governments at the moment are also quite working with a quite tricky definition of net zero. Because if we think about only carbon and eliminating or removing or reducing carbon only, but then still have to reach net zero for all the other greenhouse gases, we throw us into a deadline extension, basically, of plus 10 to 15 or 20 years of actually reaching zero emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. And so I think when we look at technology to save or to solve climate change related challenges, it needs to be about all greenhouse gases. Carbon is obviously a very large portion of this, but it needs to be considered um, with methane, which is now a huge, becoming a huge factor, especially with Arctic ice melting and um, permafrost melting. Thank you, Elisa. Sevim, 
What do you have to say from a tech perspective? First of all, super interesting, Elisa.、Um, it's the more so because I have two different aspects to it than、uh, than you, but I couldn't agree more with. Carbon literacy, pretty much the first aspect that you had, and、uh, GHG emissions, so greenhouse gas emissions, and expanding the definition of that. And in fact, I've never thought about that myself. How decarbonizing is actually putting a very limited perspective. And if I may comment on what you've said very shortly before I dive into into my two points,、um, starting off with. Carbon literacy.、Uh, it's a it's a topic which I realize is totally underestimated. What are greenhouse gas emissions? So I've dealt with this topic extensively, but sometimes even at this stage that I'm in right now, I go back to the definition being like, oh, which gases are included here again? What is exactly meant with this that grid upgrading or whatsoever? Like. It's super complicated topic is such that we just need to talk about it and the role that every one of us plays here. And even if if we don't work in the climate scene but are really interested in it, everyone can play a role in carbon literacy in talking to their parents and their grandparents. We have to imagine these are people, or especially when it comes to the grandparents or the, the older generation, are people that are only being reached by TV, which can be very Limited. Like a year ago, when when I started at the commission as a as a full time employee, I started this Instagram account. Let me say where I share climate and energy briefings, pretty much, and exactly with the reason for carbon literacy while connecting it to the EU bubble. So what has this all to do? And explaining like what、uh, how everything works, bringing these type of topics closer to the people. My main aim being that hopefully they will take this information and use that. In their conversations to inform other people, and that again goes back to what you were saying: it's extremely important that we take this role seriously and don't underestimate that the, the the impact that we can have by just talking about these topics and making it making making people around us,、uh, friends, family, more aware,、um, because it's it's a really underestimated, extremely underestimated area. But even more so when it comes to your second point, carbon and greenhouse gas emissions, and that we really need to. Remind ourselves how much impact all the other gases、um, have. I just would like to share an anecdote because I I exactly used this argument very recently myself, where we、uh, got a presentation from the European Commission on its governance, and we were like there was this question being being posed. I mean, obviously, like the the plan from the Commission. Just a quick disclaimer is extremely thorough. I mean, they're really leading by example when it comes to implementing or decarbonizing their own buildings, processes, etc., and they're working very hard on it. But Doing this presentation that we got, that、uh, the my colleague was asking, okay, greening the commission. What do you think? What we can do? Obviously, we all know that electrifying and energy is the biggest greenhouse gas emitter. Let me say. And then, like food was mentioned, and then food was kind of put down. And that's the moment where Chipton's like, how come? You know, like he's like, yeah, but it's it's not as impactful as energy or electricity. Well, is that really true? And that's exactly where my argument came. Is like, if you look at at CO2 emissions, maybe. But what we're talking about an impactful part of it is greenhouse gas emissions, and that's the third biggest polluter. Food, our food system is an extremely, extremely big、uh, contributor when it comes to the emissions. Thank you both. Now, I would like to ask you about climate security. What is the role of technology in climate security? Based on your experience and your knowledge, 
Is this role critical for climate security policy? That's a pretty good question. So there's there's um, a couple of aspects to that. First, I think um, in the security sector, we've come quite a f- long way to actually evoke this intrinsic interest in secure in the security community to actually care about climate change. Because for a long time, it was always this topic that was like nice to have, and yes, we have to talk about it because our publics obviously care about it. But what like what do we care about? Tanks still have to rule on uh, run on fuel. We don't want to like power them with solar power. And until we got to the point that they actually that they actually realized that climate change will most probably become the biggest security risk for the global community in the coming years, that that took a while. And then the penny dropped that climate change mitigation, yes, is something that uh, is important, but even more important for the climate security, uh, yeah, for the climate or for the security community is climate adaptation, right? And resilience building. So for people um, at NATO, or I would think in the defense sector per se, I think it was a really big moment to realize, okay, we have to care about climate change because otherwise we lose our readiness, we lose our operationalization, we lose our ability to actually defend ourselves if we don't adapt to changing climate conditions because our planes uh, won't be able to fly in some type of um, changing climate conditions. Um, if it's getting hotter in some areas, the um, very, very sensitive technology in a lot of our defense equipment won't work anymore. In so many operational areas we have flooding, extreme weather events in general, where we won't be able to operate anymore, um, let alone just um, things like the Arctic melting at incredibly and uh, unprecedented levels. And what type of security implications does that actually bring with it? So I think this was, um, first of all, an extremely important moment for the climate change, uh, for the security community to say, okay, climate change is something we really have to care about. And I think in the last year, we've even seen more, we've seen this big US intelligence report saying that whilst competition for resources will increase, cooperation will decrease, and it's going to exacerbate global tensions and flashpoints, um, at least from 2030 onwards to a point where it's becoming a very huge security um, crisis. And so I think in that moment, then technology becomes super important for the security sector um, to to tackle this issue. Because um, first of all, climate change modeling, climate change risk management or resilience management becomes so important now for the security sector in terms of saying, okay, what what will we have to deal with and how can we get the best data on that? And then, of course, like the technology to actually make defense systems greener, not only in a way that we say, oh, we want to be green for the sake of it, but we actually maybe want to be independent from fossil fuels and uh, the current war on Ukraine brings so many of this fossil fuel dependency aspects into the current climate change security discussion because yeah we are dependent on oil and gas and we're not only dependent for the civil population our defense and um, military uh, forces are as dependent as we are on fossil fuels to operate um, their military equipment so Again, out of an intrinsic interest to be independent, 
because when we look at uh, fossil fuel providers worldwide, we don't find a lot of happy, clappy democracies at the end of uh, these funds. And hence, um, here again, it's the intrinsic interest to change dependencies and to get this competitive advantage to maybe use renewable energy to power defense equipment. Just adding to that, I, I would like to do a quick thought experiment and send us to the future. And I think that puts everything what you said a little bit in a good good example. Um, I'm currently reading this book, which is the Ministry for, for the Future. I can recommend it to everyone. And that kind of puts me in a situation where I thought about the security aspects more and more because it puts you in a, in a, in a future and hear my thought experiment. India is suffering from a heat wave. 10 million people are dying within a week. That's an immense amount of people. This is where like a lot of questions in my, I mean, the books describes it, but where a lot of questions are coming in your head regarding whose responsibility is this and how much responsibility has India in this, given that after the 1.5 agreement, they still increase their fossil fuel sources. So uh, these type of discussions, they will happen. And I cannot even imagine, or I don't want to sit at that table myself, to be honest, where all these world leaders are going to convene and decide, okay, how are we going to deal with this? Whose responsibility is this heat wave, which is clearly related to climate change? These type of questions will emerge. And beyond that, what I can imagine happening is there will be this feeling of grief, of grief, especially towards the Western world who... Uh, has been the biggest polluter so far. And based on that, imagine extremist groups, terrorist groups emerging, being like, hey, it's their, it's their fault. And we got to take it back by doing whatever kind of extremist activities. But these type of things, like it's just a normal, I, I don't want to say behavior, but it's, it's something that will emerge by, by the things that are coming ahead and something that we already need to think about today. Whose responsibility is it and how are we going to deal with the blame game that's going to happen? Absolutely. Amazing point. If I can come back on just um, one, one thing as well. I had a, a super interesting um, a panel that I was able to or allowed to, to moderate in December with, um, on the one hand, um, a climate tech startup, which uh, provided really great insights into the technological possibilities of climate change modeling. But on the other hand, um, someone from the US administration who also highlighted that Despite all our efforts and technology and despite all the um, innovation potential and also um, a lot of really um, great prospects that we see are, are coming up, what we have to or what we cannot and must not um, overlook or factor in less is knowledge of, for example, indigenous people. And especially when we look at the, the, the security aspects of climate change in terms of, yeah, um, as a threat to civilization, speed with um, flooding or, or um, heat waves, uh, to kind of really go back to the people um, who've sometimes been either really infringed upon their rights in terms of um, living on their lands or actually being even um, having been hindered to share their knowledge further, but especially in coastal regions or in the regions in the Arctic or, or, or in other endangered places, there are indigenous people who know so much about how to preserve the lands, how to use um, traditional methods of either farming or regenerative living or sustainable ways of living that could be harvested as well. So I think when we talk about 
technology and climate security, again, we shouldn't just hope for this one miracle solutions, but also look beyond of what knowledge is already there and may be completely underutilized and um, not empowered at all. And what would happen if we were to use and empower this type of knowledge and maybe even make it mainstream for a lot of other applications? Thank you for those amazing uh, insights from your sites. Much appreciated. And I hope that our listeners are noting down because there was a lot of information from both of you. Kind of a bit not that positive one, but I guess with my second question, I'm still not going to make it even more positive, at least not at this stage yet. But my second question would be related to the fact that Currently, Europe is trying to get less dependent on Russian gas and oil with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is a good thing to do. And um, me as Ukrainian, for sure, supporting that. And uh, I guess all the Europeans are also understanding what's happening. However, at the same time, we would have to substitute those resources coming from Russia with other resources or with partnerships with other countries. And by this, there might also be some more technologically advanced ideas coming in the area of renewable sources of energy, um, resources for which are dependent, uh, in our case, on China or on Africa. So dependency, new dependencies on China and Africa might impose new threats to security, rather than from Russian, uh, rather than from Chinese side, or in the case of Africa, might even have some new neocolonialism type of aspirations. So my question would be, in light of all of this, do you think that technological progress and climate security are still able to go in line together, or do they contradict each other? It's a really, really interesting question. It has many facets, not only on the security part, but also like inherently when you look at the technological solutions themselves, where you ask, like, okay, would they create more problems than solutions? What I've heard a lot on this aspect is especially when it uh, when it comes to solar and wind, for example, or EVs, this argument of, hey, lithium-ion batteries, aren't they also um, bad for the environment? Let me put it in simple terms. Solar panels, they use these materials, they're also bad. Wind turbines, etc., they cannot be recycled, so they land after, after 15, 20 years, they land in these landfills, these huge landfills <laughs> you cannot even imagine, and are basically being trashed out there. So are these technological solutions creating a problem it's a matter of perspective so these problems that i just mentioned are definitely problems and it touches on the security aspect uh, elisa i'll leave those up to you because i mean obviously these materials are coming from all over the world touching on all different kinds of people's lives and partly also going into modern slavery let me put it that way but an important thing that we do need to keep in mind Ed, is that, first of all, a lot is being done in order to mitigate these problems when it comes to lithium-ion batteries, like the new types of batteries. So there, there are a lot of solutions being being created uh, in order to mitigate these problems already. But what I always try to ask um, people is, like, no solution comes without a sacrifice or with a trade-off. 
And we always need to keep that question in mind. It's a matter of choice. What kind of trade-off do you do you want to take in? But no change, no path to, uh, to the better is going to come with no sacrifices. And then the question is, okay, do we need to wait for the perfect technology in order to get started? Or sh should we start today and improve along the way? I'm a big promoter of the second path, and I do believe that the first one, so waiting for the perfect technology, is really holding us up. I've been at a conference in London a couple of months ago, and hydrogen was discussed. Same thing goes about hydrogen. It's a, it's a highly discussed um, topic, like, is it a solution? Is it a problem? Is it going to work? And all these type of questions. So again, it's the best alternative. So that's something that we need to work with. There is no like yes or no question. Like it's, we need to work with it and we need to make the best out of it. And a lot of smart people are working in order to mitigate the problems as much as possible and create the best solution out of it. But in this conference, for example, there was an expert panel and uh, they obviously discussed a lot of the problems. We like to focus on the, on the disadvantages of things. And I was talking to a peer uh, participant later. He turned out to be an investment banker. He, he asked me like, hey, what do you think about hydrogen? You work for the commission. What does the commission say about hydrogen? And I said exactly the same thing as I told you guys right now. And I said, and I asked him, what about you? Interestingly, he told me, he's like, mm, well, the expert panel just said, you know, flagged so many problems. I don't think it's going to work out. And I was thinking in my head, well, this guy who has a lot of money to invest, who was considering hydrogen as an investment potential, is going now back to his company and saying, guys, no, 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 not investing in hydrogen. These type of things have a huge impact. I'm not saying spread misinformation or whatsoever. We need to be honest about, about the advantages and disadvantages, stuff that we need to work on. But we also need to understand what these mean and do not see that as limitations, but as a moment to innovate and see further solutions. I couldn't agree more. I think it's um, when we talk about new technology that is sometimes hailed as, as, as being climate change um, solution provider, it is this very nuanced discussion that we need about it. On the one hand, I think, yeah, innovation only comes by test, fail, start again and find something better. So inevitably we'll have setbacks, we'll have challenges to figure out on those paths as well. The mining sector, which has long been the bad child of, um, in, in terms of environmental studies, is now becoming um, hugely important for, as, as um, Seven just said, for a lot of the parts that ne are needed for renewable energy, for electric cars um, and stuff like that. And so um, there, for example, it becomes much more important to actually um, increase sustainability accountability from those those mining companies instead of saying oh you see we also use rare minerals and um, that are polluting and we now increase dependency on on on, on those materials and then we have these post-colonial um uh, relationships maybe again between east and uh, south and north those are all as seven said very true aspects but if we then deploy other tools to um, offset these negative um, aspects or to remove them or overcome them. One of them tools being um, corporate sustainability reporting or just corporate accountability and, and applying really um, uh, regulated standards and um, tested and certified standards instead of just saying, oh, someone released this sustainability report, that must be great then. So it's this balanced and nuanced discussion that we need. And that, as you rightfully said, is so incredibly important for the investing community. So if we don't get the financial sector 
onto ESG, so environmental social governance um, investing, then a lot of other aspects won't have that much effect because the financial responsible investment sector has so much power over shaping how our economy will grow towards a model that actually enables us to live in the sustainable and healthy boundaries of our planet. Another point is that when we talk about technology, what I said before, new technology, that's kind of what we mean. We need new technology, but we're already using all types of technology to combat climate change. And if we look at how we can actually get to 1.5, it's a combination of so many factors. It's a combination of increasing energy efficiency in the transport, in the building, in the infrastructure um, sectors. It's a it's a matter of um, subsidizing um, different types of energy, of, of non-subsidizing coal anymore and fossil fuels anymore and of subsidizing um, renewable energies, um, of introducing carbon pricing, of introducing carbon removal, maybe, as this being one of the new technologies, but also of actually um, growing carbon sinks again. Technology is not, is, is kind of an underlaying connector for a lot of these tools that we need to deploy to get to um, 1.5 degrees, but it's not the only aspect. And I think the one risk we might face and that you probably are also um, maybe hinting at with the question is that people might use some of this new technology to actually get lazy about really addressing climate change. And a lot of the criticism in this regard is sometimes directed at carbon removal, um, direct carbon, uh, direct air capture, um, all these technologies, which I find very promising because if we look at calculations, we will need it. We will need it as a very important part to actually get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions. But it shouldn't, of course, be an argument for us to just do what we do and continue doing everything um, like we did it before uh, and then saying, well, but we can we can always remove the carbon afterwards. So it needs to be, again, be integrated in a very balanced and nuanced approach, and it shouldn't serve any of the fossil fuel emitters as an apology or as, a, as an easy fix to their responsibility in terms of addressing climate change. Thank you both for your insight. I would now like to ask, what are your hopes and dreams for better use of technology to find solutions for climate security? A hopeful way of looking at it. I mean, first of all, we have a great generation at the moment. Like, is it is it our generation, Elisa? Is it the one to come? Is it the one above us? I see that I'm surrounded with extremely competent and uh, and extremely passionate colleagues and friends who are working in the scene. And I think that's seriously a hope that drives me. I mean, you have to imagine, I do very often sit on my desk and be like, okay, what kind of value do I actually provide to the overall goal now? I mean, we all know, we always talk about impact and whatsoever, but we have this immense goal and we just do like this little bit, but it feels good. Doing this progress check-in, let me say, once in a while, I mean, like, okay, is this what I'm doing actually really valuable? Is, is, is a question that I face to myself quite often where it always comes back to the people that I work with that put me that put me on track again because seeing that so many competent and passionate people are working on this goal with the really good intentions just keeps me on the right path and uh, keeps my motivation up as well so thanks to to all of you for contributing to that as well 
in general, when we look at a, a more positive outlook, for, for me, there is, there's three main, main points that make me hopeful uh, on some days. <laughs> I don't, other days, they're not so hopeful. But well, um, so the, the first thing is, is the knowledge we have at the moment, right? So I think the, the more we live in the 21st century of the, of the tech and digital revolution, the knowledge that can empower us about how we act, how we can change behaviors has never been greater. We have tools for almost everything. I can look up what my spaghetti bolognese has as a carbon footprint in the evening. I can look at how my shopping um, is impacting global supply chains. I can look at basically everything. There are so many amazing tools for individuals out there that I think this is really a great, great moment of empowering the individual to actually um, tackle the challenge as a group then again. Um, and that comes along with the connectivity we have, right? The world has never been more connected, especially the youth, this new generation has never been more connected and never been more interested to share everything with the whole world. And hence maybe also this leads to the second big point that I think accountability is growing, be it for corporations, for governments, for individuals that are in the center of public life. So like we we, we are now more than ever able to hold people accountable and to maybe change their behavior. Um, and then the last thing I would say um, is, is um, unfortunately, but maybe also a reason for hope is we did receive a number of wake-up calls recently, which should really influence how at least governments might change their regulations. We've seen how COVID has been um, a crazy driver for um, green recovery, the Green Deal. Unfortunately, um, it needed a war for Europe and for, for example, states like Germany to wake up to really speed up their independence from fossil fuels and uh, like get, get closer and get quicker towards renewable energy. And um, I think there's, these are all events that really have shown us that if pushed to a real urgent need, the world can change. And that's a very valuable lesson, I think, for us. What might be helpful um, for people and what, what sometimes gives me hope is that even when I have a day where I'm just overwhelmed with the global complexities and the inter interdependencies of everything and kind of thinking, oh my God, I have to care about everything and everyone um, and climate change and we're all going to die anyways and it's going to be horrible. Try to like disconnect from all of this and try to find one motivation that just concerns yourself and it can be as as egoistic as it might seem to you but at least it's maybe a very personal motivation that helps that helps you stay on track and maybe say let's not eat the steak tonight let's let's cycle to work tomorrow let's take one flight less next year even those small steps just out of this one personal motivation and as an example if i have those bad days i'm always thinking oh my god i really love skiing if we all mess this up, my grandchildren might never be able to go skiing. That would be really, really horrible for me. So it's a, it's like a super small world, egoistic, little tiny motivation that I hold on to personally. But sometimes this might be a very good way to kind of fight through this noise of, of this global burden that we sometimes see and face and just uh, hold on to something that you really want to basically avoid or make happen or fight for. And I think that's kind of something that could make us a little bit more hopeful instead of always thinking about the, the big picture. <laughs> Thank you everyone for joining us today. It has been really insightful and nice to hear both of you. Thank you for sharing with us your expertise. Sabrina and I for sure learned a lot, but 
I hope that our listeners also learned and took notes of a lot of comments and a lot of issues that have been raised today, both on exacerbating the problem, but as well as finding solutions to the climate change and climate insecurities that our world is facing today. Thanks again. And uh, I leave with the comment, we shall prevail, as the girls just mentioned in their last comments. It was a true pleasure, I have to say. It was really nice chatting with you, Lisa, about this topic. I learned so much as well myself through this conversation. Same from me. So thanks so much, Sivim, for this um, really, really interesting and inspiring conversation. I'll uh, make sure to also follow um, your work on Instagram because I think these are also efforts that seem maybe small to you but might have such a huge impact and it's exactly the right direction and I um, have taken a lot of um, really valuable insights away from this. Thanks to the hosts for giving us this opportunity. Thank you for listening to this last episode of our mini-series on climate security. It was a pleasure to share it with you. A special thanks to our speakers, to Free Range Production and the US mission to NATO. We would love to hear what you thought about this mini-series. Let us know on social media. Sophia, thank you for co-hosting with me. It was a great pleasure to do this with you. It was a lot of fun to have you as my co-host, Sabrine. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Thank you.